Hey, this is Dylan with the Scripture Chronicles. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you guys want to follow along with the show, we are going to be going into Genesis chapters 12 through 15 in today's episode. Also, if you'd like to email us, the email is scripturechronicles at gmail.com. You can send us in your questions, thoughts, comments. If you guys enjoy the show, please go on to Apple Podcasts or onto iTunes and leave a review on there. It really helps out the show's visibility. And you can jump onto our website if you would like. The website is www.thebibleisastory.com. Again, that's www.thebibleisastory.com. There you'll find the show, resources, and blog posts. Check us out there. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Scripture Chronicles, the podcast dedicated to exploring the unified story of the Bible. As always, I'm Dylan, and joining me is my fellow bearded colleague, Corey Howitt. Corey, that beard is looking particularly fabulous. 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 Today, what is your secret? Fabulous. Wow. Uh, I'm loving the Valley Girl talk. You know, I, I'm just uh, always inspired by your beard, my bearded brother. Bearded brothers, indeed. So as is custom, I am going to suggest that if you have not yet done so, that you go back and listen to last week's episode prior to this one, insofar as each of these episodes builds on the next. So if you have not yet listened to last week's episode, it will be very beneficial in understanding this week's episode. That being said, if you don't have time for that, or if you just don't want to do it, we're going to go ahead and give you a brief recap of what happened last week. So last week we looked at Genesis chapters 6 through 11. So if you don't know, that is the flood narrative and the Tower of Babylon. So in the flood narrative, we ask the question, all right, is this guy, Noah, going to be the promised seed that we saw that God promised was going to come from the woman in Genesis 3? So remember, we're looking for a seed. God said, a seed's going to come, and he's going to crush the head of the snake. So is Noah that guy? That was our question. And we went through the text, and we saw that God saved Noah, even though he had condemned humanity to judgment, right? So in the flood narrative, you have this idea that God is hitting the rewind button on creation. So in Genesis 1, you see God actually pulling the land from the ocean. So the ocean representing chaos and the land representing the blessing. God pulls the land from the chaos and sets humans on it. Then in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, you see God actually bringing the waters up and covering the land that he had created, thereby representing the chaos actually coming and consuming the land the blessing, all of it, but we're not left without hope. God saves a dude named Noah. And Noah, as we saw, was supposed to be this guy that's actually going to bring rest. So everything looked promising for this to be the dude. He's going to bring rest. God saves him from this destruction. And after the destruction happens, God actually recreates, in a sense, the world where he actually once again separates the floodwaters from the land and he sets Noah safely onto the land. Noah gets out of the boat, builds an altar to the Lord, and God makes a covenant with him and with the land. Once again, everything seems hunky-dory. Well, that is until Noah makes his significant blunder. He goes, he plants a garden, and he eats of the fruit. Again, imagery from Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. But when he eats of the fruit, he passes out naked, drunk. Ham goes in, sees his father naked, and instead of actually covering up his father's nakedness. He goes and reports it to his brothers, reveling in it. We reported that the nakedness is actually significant because of the fact that it points back to Genesis 3, where the nakedness is a nakedness of judgment. It showcases Noah's shame and the fact that he's under judgment. Ham, instead of covering that up, goes, tells his brothers, hey, dudes, my father, you know, our father, he's naked. Fantastic news to hear. Uh, The other two brothers, they go in, cover Noah's nakedness, and they get the blessing. So. Ham gets cursed, his son, Canaan, Canaan gets cursed. Uh, And this is the first time that we actually see a human doling out curses and judgments. So before this point, it has always been God that deals out the blessings and the curses. In this case, though, Noah deals out the curse to Canaan, and then he actually blesses his other two sons. So we're left asking, who's the guy? It's not Noah. It's not any of his sons. 
So who is it? So that's going to be the topic of this week's episode. Who is the guy? At the end of last week's episode, we saw that Babylon was established where they tried to build a tower. That is, everybody came together, tried to build a tower, reaching the highest heavens, basically making themselves a name for themselves and trying to make themselves have access to heaven without relying on God when that doesn't work out because God disperses them uh, and curses them as a result, changes all their languages. We see that the text takes a turn and starts focusing on a single character, Abraham, or Abram, as the text initially introduces him. So today's topic, Abram, is he the guy? Corey, what do you think? Uh, Do I think he's the guy? (laughs) Yeah, do you think he's the guy? I don't know. I guess we'll find out. But spoiler to the story is I think Jesus is the guy, actually. But yeah, just uh, to add to this recap, we saw some genealogies. Um, We see that um, when the author says these are the generations of or the genesis of this people group, we see section breaks. Um, At the end of chapter 11, we read the generations of Terah, who is Abraham's father. So we see at the end of chapter 11 and verse 31 that Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 and he died there. Um, So we see um, this connecting point where Terah was on his way to the land of Canaan. And then we're about to see God commission Abram with the commission to go. And in chapter 12, we see, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's blessed, not cursed. Correct, Corey? That's correct. Dylan's making fun of me for my first take where I said all the nations of the earth will be cursed. That would change the entire story completely. It's an important distinction. Yes, very important. (laughs) What else is important here, Dylan? Yeah, so in this, we see the distinction being made between Abram and between the nations that were trying to make the Tower of Babylon. So the thing that gets really interesting is that the Lord actually promises to make a name for Abram over and against the idea that the nations were going to try to make a name for themselves. So instead of the nations making a name for themselves, instead of Abraham deciding to make a name for himself, he relies on Yahweh God to create that name for him. Just a little aside, anytime you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your English Bible, that is actually the name Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, if you will. Uh, So whenever you see that name, Lord, it's a placeholder for the name Yahweh. You can insert that name there. So Yahweh goes up to Abraham and he says, here's your command. Go from the country that your father dwelt in and your kindred's father and your kindred and your father's house and leave that and go to the land I'm going to show you. So right then and there, you have a command. So if you do this, I, Yahweh, will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever dishonors you, I will curse. And through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So you get this important, if you do this, I am going to do do this. Corey, what's the significance of all these blessings here? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you guys notice that just in verses two and three, the word bless or blessing is used five times. And this is significant because from the curse in Genesis chapter three through chapter 11, the word curse, the Hebrew word, aror, is used five times. So we see because of human rebellion, all of creation is cursed. And so we have this blessing as a promise of God 
as the undoing of the big curse. Um, especially that last line of the blessing, where in you, God says to Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we're so we're thinking, is Abraham the guy? Is he going to be the one in which all family, families of the earth are blessed? Is he going to be the guy um, that was promised in Genesis 3 that is going to stomp the head of the serpent? And we're going to have to read on in the story to find out, well, it's not him. But in his descendants, there's going to be someone. There's going to be a guy. And we're going to have to read on to find that guy. Spoiler alert. So moving on in the text then, starting out in verse 4, it says, So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Already we're off on a good note. So Abram went as Yahweh had told him, and Lot went with him. Good note, ruined. Didn't the Lord just say, leave your father's country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'm going to show you? Well, this isn't exactly leaving everybody now, is it? Lot went with him. We're going to see why that's a problem in a minute. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out, and they went to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Buzzers going off in your mind. Remember who the Canaanites are. That's the son of Ham who Noah cursed. So the Canaanites were in the land. That's not a great thing to start with there. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, to Yahweh, who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on still toward the Negev. So a bunch of important stuff going on here. First thing that we should note is the fact that these places are going to become very important. Remember when we talked about the idea that oftentimes texts will look back, particularly in the Torah, texts will look back and forward. They expect you to read these multiple times, the author that is. He expects you to read this multiple times, to meditate on it, to contemplate it. So they expect you to know, they, the author, expects you to know some of these details from previous readings. Well, what we're going to come to find is that Abram actually does two things. He kind of prefigures the Israelites who are going to come. He does a lot of the same things that they are going to do. We're going to see how he leaves Egypt. He goes into the land that God called him to. He goes to Bethel. Ai and Shechem, those are the same places that Jacob is going to go to here in a little bit. Those are the same places that Joshua eventually is going to take the Israelites. We also see that he goes and he basically claims the land by building an altar saying, I accept the promise that you have given to me, God, by building this, this altar here. And he goes and he goes to Shechem to the Oak of more. So remember the theme of trees that we had been kind of weaving into the podcast where humans are like trees, but God is also like a tree. And often God is worshipped on high places near trees. That's going to be a big thing coming up as well. So we have Abram prefiguring Israel, also looking back to Noah. Just like Noah, Abraham is a character that is saved from judgment. Noah is saved from the judgment of the flood. Abram is saved from the judgment of Babylon. So we're going to see how Ur of the Chaldees later in the prophets actually becomes more or less synonymous with the idea of Babylon. And so by being called out of Ur of the Chaldees and called to Canaan, Abram is actually being saved from the judgment that just happened to Babylon in chapter 11. So looking back to Noah, Looking forward to the Israelites. Whole bunch of stuff going on in this one. Corey, what else do you have to add to that? Today was the first day um, Dylan told me of, of this looking forward to these places. And that's just amazing. Um, the, the details that these authors add in. Um, sometimes I think, I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't have my atlas out. This isn't important to me. Or maybe I need to pull my atlas out. But that's not the point at all to get your atlas. It's just 
the authors are showing that they're all in unison and all these details are important and they're going to be setting up future scenes, looking back at past scenes, and um, they're just building on each other, showing uh, that there's a bunch of continuity, maybe more than meets the eye at first reading. Um, so again, like you're, Dylan, you're saying what you're killing it in saying is um, this is meditation literature, and over many, many readings, we'll see stuff like that, and it's really cool. But yeah, so out of this place where Abram goes to worship Yahweh on this high place near this oak of Moreh, um, going to all these places that will be important and familiar. Um, we're going to see a, another hyperlink to another place coming in Scripture. Let's move to verse 10, still in the same chapter. And it says, Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the, fa uh, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And sure enough, that's kind of what happens. The Egyptians see Sarai is beautiful. And Abram does lie, Sarai does lie, and so Pharaoh takes Sarai to be his wife, and he gives Abram a bunch of gifts for Sarai's account. But that little hyperlink um, I mentioned, I don't know if you guys all picked up on it, but later on, at the end of Genesis, there's going to be a famine in the land, and a bunch of people are going to need to go to Egypt for refuge from the famine. That's what Joseph does in Egypt. He prepares Egypt to endure the famine. And Israel, Israel's sons, go down there to get help. And so now with Abram, Abram goes down to Egypt to get help. And as it continues, a, a, more of a hyperlink continues as well. I'm going to skip on down to verse 17. And it says, But Yahweh afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they went and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So we have another hyperlink linking to Egypt, the plague specifically. So Moses and Yahweh together inflict a bunch of plagues on Pharaoh and on Egypt because of what he does with God's people Israel. And so here, Yahweh inflicts plagues on Pharaoh because what he does with his people, Abram and Sarai. I love that image of a hyperlink. You know, a hyperlink is that blue text that you see when you're online and you click on it and it brings you to another web page or you click on it and it opens up a video. Well, basically that's exactly what the biblical authors have done for us before hyperlinks were even cool. Hashtag hipster. They created hyperlinks within the text. You click on this hyperlink and it takes you over to the Exodus or you click on this hyperlink and it takes you into Egypt. You click on this and, and it just shows you all of these different aspects or avenues of the text. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project is really the first person to that I've heard use that term hyperlink. And I really like it. I think it's a great way to think of the text as prefiguring things going forward in time, also looking backwards in time and how all of the different biblical authors pick up on so many of these subtleties to bring these themes to bear in their own light. So let's go ahead and move on into chapter 13. So we see Abram in Egypt, plagues come on account of the fact that he lied about Sarai being his sister. And that shows or prefigures or hyperlinks to Israel in Egypt. Now let's keep going in chapter 13, starting in verse one. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had. And again, Lot went with him into the Negev. So 
Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh, and Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so that they could not dwell together. Where else do we see that? Well, this is actually a hyperlink too. Did you pick up on it? The hyperlink actually points forward to Esau and Jacob, where the exact same story unfolds there. They can't dwell together because they have too much. So Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen or my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. And if you take the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley, as, uh, and he saw that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zor. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So you got that quick aside that the author inputs, expecting you to know that Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed. So thanks for the spoilers there, author. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that you see, I'm going to give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which were at Hebron, and there he built an altar to Yahweh. So in this section, we're seeing a couple things. So like we already pointed out, the hyperlink between Lot and between Esau is apparent. But more than that, we have this consistent theme of the idea of blessing and the blessing kind of being held in intention. So at the very beginning of chapter 12, you get the idea that Abraham is going to be blessed, or, or at that time, Abram. Abram is going to be blessed by Yahweh if he obeys. Well, what is the blessing? The blessing ultimately is going to be offspring. It goes back to the blessing at the very beginning of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. That was the very first blessing that God actually gave. So once again, that blessing comes back up here and it's be fruitful and multiply. You're going to have a great name. I'm going to build for you a name and it's going to be through your offspring. But that blessing is constantly being held in tension. The first time it's intention is when they go to Egypt well, we saw already when Egypt, the person was born and created Egypt, the nation, that Egypt, the name means oppressor. So Egypt's already a bad place. So they go to the land of the oppressor and you see Abraham lie about Sarai and Sarai get taken. So you're, you're like, oh my gosh, how is this blessing going to happen now? Fortunately, God gets him out of that one miraculously. And now all of a sudden, Abraham, the doofus that he is, says, hey, Lot, we can't dwell together anymore. And so anywhere you want, you can have, even though God told Abram already in chapter 12 that he's going to inherit the land of Canaan. Basically, Abram's offering anywhere, including the land of Canaan. Fortunately for us, Lot decides to take the land of Jordan instead of the land of Canaan, where Abram currently is. And so once again, the Lord confirms to Abram, hey, this is going to be the land that you're going to get. Don't give it away. Um and then Lot heads to the east. Now, remember, east is a negative direction. Eastward, east just represents the nation's evil things. Bad stuff is in the east, man. Bad stuff. Don't go east. Corey, what else you got? Yeah, actually, we see this um, blessing and tension start back in uh, chapter 11, verse 30. It gives us a little preface to something important in the story, saying now, Sarai was barren, she had no child, right? And what's the one of the first things that God promises in blessing to Abram is, I'm going to make you a multitude. I'm going to make you a ginormous nation. And we might be scratching our head thinking, um, how's that going to happen with a barren woman, right? Um, so yeah, lots of hardships going on. You know, Sarah's just barren. There's not much she could do about that. Except if you have the Lord on your side, there's something Abram could have done about bringing Lot. That was a huge thorn in his side. There's trusting in God and not lying to Pharaoh. So we see that there's a lot of 
hardships and tension and a lot of it is unnecessary but yeah you're absolutely right like that we just start with this great tension that's you're thinking one of these things has to give god said he's going to bless but yet um, there's hard circumstances in the way and stupid decisions by the one being blessed that is abram so yeah we, we're seeing god work things out lot choosing to go east works out well for him and so we're gonna see more in that story in line like what why that's important he chooses to go towards sodom and gomorrah because starting in chapter 14 we see that there is a giant war so an army of kings about five kings get together um, and go to battle against four kings and so there's a, a ginormous battle they all get together and the five kings of Kedorlamor win and so the losing kings they get ransacked, they they and their possessions get taken, and the place that Lot went, that's part of the land, part of the territory that loses and is taken as a possession. So Lot gets taken, we see down in chapter 14, verse 12, saying, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and of Aner. These were all allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the woman and the people. So big battle, besides thinking of how cool would this be to be made into a movie, what else is important here, Dylan? Yeah, the battle is significant. So we have a bunch of kings come out and this is just known as the battle of the king is the king of Sodom is among the kings defeated. As such, we saw that Lot went and settled near Sodom. And the author threw in our nice little aside that this was before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. So we already know that Sodom's probably a bad place and it's going to get wrecked. And this isn't even the destruction of it. We're going to see that later. This is just the king of Sodom losing, which means that when they get ransacked, the victorious kings are able to take their share of the plunder, including, like Corey said, Lot. So this guy has caused absolutely nothing but trouble since the outset. So God told Abram to leave everything and go to the land that he's going to show him. And he took Lot, probably not the best idea. Let's go ahead and move on and continue reading into verses 17 and on of chapter 14. So starting in verse 17 of chapter 14, it says, after his return from the defeat of Kedolomor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Seva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourselves. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, to Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal or a strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young man have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkal, and Mamre take their share. Wow. Okay. So we have the battle of the kings happen. Lot gets taken. Sodom and the kings associated with him get taken out and their kingdoms get ransacked. Like we saw, Lot gets taken. And then Abraham goes and with 318 dudes kicks some serious, but we got five kings, five armies that just defeated four kings and four armies. And then Abram with 318 dudes goes and kicks their butt, gets Lot back, 
And then we get this weird picture. All of a sudden, this dude just pops into existence out of absolutely nowhere, Melchizedek, or as you might have heard before, Melchizedek. Corey, who the stinking heck is Melchizedek? Oh, man, I was hoping you would tell me. No, just kidding. So um, important to note in this story is that Melchizedek isn't one of the kings mentioned in the battle of the many kings who have hard names to pronounce, um, nor is Salem, the land mentioned where he's king of mention, either in Genesis 14 or anywhere leading up to this. It would take some uh, Hebrew lexicon kung fu or a quick read through Hebrews chapter 7 to get a grasp of this and the weight of this. Um, so um, Melchizedek is a couple of Hebrew words pushed together. So Melech means king and Tzedek means righteousness. So his name means king of righteousness and king of Salem. I'm going to teach you a Hebrew word here. Um, shalom means peace. So he, the king of righteousness, is also the king of the territory known as peace, right? And this is a hyperlink to a prophecy of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, where Jesus is promised to be the prince of peace, right? So we have the king of peace, and he brings out bread and wine, which is another hyperlink to somewhere really important, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of it. Yeah, I, I can't think of it either. Bread and wine, if you guys know the significance of that, let, let us know. Um, and he blesses Abram. Um, something important about blessings. If you guys have checked out our website, I just re- wrote a blog on blessing. And it covers this a little bit where um, the superior always blesses the inferior. At least that's what Hebrews chapter 7 says. And so we see that this guy is greater than Abram. He is a king, but not just any king, king of righteousness, king of peace. Um, He's also a priest of God most high. So in this world where we think, you know, Abram is the guy representing Yahweh, all of a sudden this kingly priest comes comes out of nowhere as a priest for Yahweh. And we don't have much of an idea yet for priests. That's going to be something that comes up in uh, Exodus and Leviticus. Um, Hence, Levites, the priests are in Leviticus. But so this guy is blessing Abram, and he blesses God. And then we see Abram tithe to Melchizedek. Now, this is really, really significant. Melchizedek, you guys have probably heard some about him already and maybe have your own theories. We're just going to show you our cards here because otherwise we're not going to get to talk about Melchizedek again until Psalm 110, which is going to probably be a long time from now. Um, So some people take Melchizedek to just be kind of like a symbol of Jesus. We take this to be Jesus himself for the reasons that he is king and priest and the rest of the Torah shows that the king and the priest, those positions are the only anointed positions, right? So a king will be anointed and a priest will be anointed. Anointed one, um, the Hebrew word for that is Meshiach, where we get our word Messiah. So we have a anointed one who brings out bread and wine, who blesses Abram, and also Abram tithes to him, which is significant because we find out later in the Torah that you tithe to God. Right? You, you give a tenth. The fact that he uses this word, a tenth of everything, is a hyperlink to you know, tithing instructions. Um, and you don't just do that to another person. right? We see that um, although Abram isn't you know, too concerned about his belongings, he's tithing here. He's not just giving a gift away. Um, So the fact that he's tithing, the fact that this person is carrying all these titles and, of course, bringing out bread and wine, um, we think that this is Jesus. And it's significant that Melchizedek has no genealogy shown about him. He has no beginning of days and no end of days mentioned. So it's significant that we don't hear about anything before and after 
this point. That's that's kind of the point of just bringing him up out of the blue and not hearing about him again until one verse in the book of Psalms. But yeah, so we, we definitely see a pre-incarnate Jesus sighting here in our books. Right, Dylan? Yeah, what's that called? We call that a Christophany or a theophany when God appears in other guises. Um, yeah, so Christophany, when Christ appears throughout the Bible, where it's not saying for us directly, hey, this is Yeshua, who is going, who is the Messiah going to be revealed at this time. So we have to do some uh, some work to make those connections. Another one of Corey's million-dollar words that you can fold up, stick in your back pocket, right, Corey? That's right. <laughs> I made it up yeah. myself. So Christophany, anywhere where the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate Yeshua appears and seems to interact with people. That's a Christophany. So basically before Jesus actually shows up on the scene, before he's born to the, the Virgin Mary, we believe that Melchizedek, prince of, or excuse me, king of righteousness, king of Salem, peace, or what will eventually become Jerusalem. Hmm. I wonder, wonder hmm. what's going on there. Anyway, we're going to move on into chapter 15 and wrap up the episode. So in chapter 15, we once again get God actually building on the covenant that he has already sort of started establishing with Abram. So it says, after these things, the word of the Lord or the word of Yahweh came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, Oh, Yahweh, God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. So there is the crux of the issue, you know, the blessing under tension idea that we talked about earlier. So how the heck can this blessing come about if the dude who's going to be blessed with children is, you know, childless? It's problematic. And this is Abram speaking. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household that is a servant or, or, or someone that, that isn't related to him is going to be my heir. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. The man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, that is Abram, believed Yahweh. And it was counted to him as righteousness. We're going to pause and camp there for just a second. This is absolutely huge. And it's going to become critical as we move through the Hebrew Bible and then into the New Testament. The idea that Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, one thing we have not yet pointed out is that if you go back and read chapter 14 of Genesis and then compare it with Deuteronomy chapter 20, which is the law regarding war and appropriate war and how to go to war and all that, it actually aligns on a number of key points. Meaning that Abram, in a sense, actually followed a law, the law, before the law was given. Well, how is that? And then all of a sudden we got this bizarre statement, and Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, isn't it according to traditional understanding that if you keep the law, that's how you're saved? Well, no, not exactly. As a matter of fact, it's always been, ever since the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, as we would call it, that it is faith that actually draws one to God in a salvific manner. It is faith that allows one to be saved. Believing God is what is credited to Abram as righteousness. Moreover, he's actually able to keep a section of the law, meaning that even though the law hadn't been given yet, Abraham intuitively knew this law. Now that is a hyperlink forward into Jeremiah, where we see that God is actually going to create a covenant where the law is actually going to be written on people's hearts. So we get Abram prefiguring this idea that the law is written on his heart. He knows it intuitively without having to look it up in Torah. And 
he believes God, he has faith. So basically he's prefiguring this ideal standing where you actually are able to believe God, have it accredited to you as righteousness and have the law written on your heart. Remember the major conflict that we propose that the Bible is all about is the idea of whose wisdom are you going to choose? Are you going to choose God's wisdom or are you going to choose your wisdom? And this is an instance where Abram believes God. He chooses God's wisdom and that's what's credited to him as righteousness. Corey, do you have anything else to add? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're touching on a lot of really important things. Um, one namely that I want to point to is um, the use of law throughout the Bible. Um, so the first five books we, we've mentioned a couple of times is called the Torah. And so throughout scripture, Torah often gets translated as law. And so the, the problem with that connotation is we, we think of law as the instructions only. But remember, Genesis is part of the Torah. And so this is instructions for us as well. Um, and I, I think we get kind of thrown off by um, New Testament uses of the word law, which is really showing us back to the Torah and God's intention. So, yeah, Dylan nailed it on the head where the idea of the Torah is that people are saved by faith through the grace of God. Now, the grace of God had it not been revealed so greatly as it was to the new covenant in Jesus. But here we see it's by faith that someone is made right with God. Righteousness, we kind of have made it Christianese, but righteousness simply means to be made right in relationship with God. And so Abram's made right simply by believing. And as Dylan said, I'm just going to continue piggybacking off of him, is that is the heart of the Torah, to believe in God. And so God continually says through the prophets is, you know, the sacrifices I don't really care for. The sacrifices don't save you. Following these laws don't save you. It's showing that you have faith in me. Out of faith, you will obey. But it is the faith that I will see. It is the faith that I will redeem and save. So that's kind of a big misconception. I think Genesis really helps us see like, oh, the Torah is doing more than just commanding here. And so uh, Genesis 15 verse 6, like we just read, is, is an absolutely huge verse to our understanding of the Torah, of faith, of righteousness, of how someone is saved. And, and it's simply by believing in God. And God is the one who makes righteous. Right? So huge point. Think about that. Meditate on that for a while. But we're going to have to move on. Right? And so in this promise where God says, listen, I'm not going to let Eleazar, this uh, servant in your household, be your heir. So he goes on um, in chapter 15, verse 7, saying, I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. But when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Um, so all these animals, again, are hyperlinks to the sacrifices that will be listed out in the opening chapters of Leviticus. So he cuts open these animals, and now he's just staving off birds of prey to then see what will happen with this. So as the sun was going down, this is verse 12. A deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. 
for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Really interesting little aside of a promise. This passage, looking at verse 13, he says that your offspring, Abram, are going to be sojourners in the land where they will be afflicted for 400 years. All right, we're going to think in our mind, when are the Israelites uh, servants and afflicted for 400 years? Egypt, right? So God's promising that you're going to go to a foreign land. You're going to go to Egypt. You're going to be slaves, afflicted harshly for a time. But I'll bring you back to take this land, which is really cool. The reason being that the occupants currently in the land, namely the Amorites, they're not evil enough yet. So we see the side of God where he sees what's going to happen, that they are going to become wicked. But he's not willing to use Israel, even though they're his chosen people, to use them to you know, take out and destroy a nation that isn't wicked. They haven't done anything wrong. Um, so a really cool aspect of God is being shown here. But we see God showing us what's going to happen. So when we get to Egypt and the people being enslaved there, we shouldn't be that surprised. And we see that when they leave Egypt and they come out with great possessions, we also shouldn't be surprised. So we see God showing us what's going to happen. We see God showing mercy for other nations. So that's a little aside. And we go into verse 17. And he says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. That is, that the little isle of carcasses that was made. Verse 18, on that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, all the ites are mentioned there. So, really interesting here. This is um, how God makes covenants. Usually we see there is um, two sides to a covenant or a promise. Um, we're used to um, legal documents. So if you write uh, your signature down on a paper, you're agreeing to all the terms written above, right? Or a lot of times when we're on our phone or computer and it says, did you read all the privacy terms and uses? And everyone in here listening to this is lying, I'm sure, when they like, yeah, I read and I accept. We're used to that kind of thing. And this is kind of weird, though. So we see this aisle of animal carcasses that are cut in half. And we have the idea here that whoever passes through this aisle is going to be tied to this covenant. That means they're going to have to keep up their end of the bargain. And so what happens here, though, is that Abram falls asleep, right? So God, in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, he's the only thing that passes through these pieces. So God is essentially saying that this covenant is unconditional for Abram, and therefore it only depends on me. So God's making a promise with himself, saying, I'm going to bless Abram. I'm going to bless his descendants, and I'm going to give him the land, the land where these people reside, the land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, which is a really big deal and really good for Abram because from the moment that he was called, very first thing, he starts blowing it, right? So we see like, okay, this guy isn't the guy. But good thing that God is going to bring the Messiah, through a promise made with himself, because if the promise for the Messiah to come and save all people was put on any one person or any one family, such as Abram or Noah, Adam or Eva, their recent kids before this time, we'd see that, oh, we're in big trouble if we're depending on any works of man to uphold their side of the bargain. So thank God that God puts it on himself to fulfill this covenant. This is a, a type of covenant um, where we call it an unconditional covenant, a term you're probably familiar with. 
Um, so again, unconditional to Abram or any person. Um, the condition is only on God to see this thing out. Thank God, indeed, that, that is the case. So, like Corey said, Abram is not the guy. We're still looking for the guy. Where the heck is the guy? Well, we're going to have a, a little while before we actually do get to the guy, but in answer to our question at the beginning of this episode, it's not Abram, but it's going to come through Abram. So we get a little bit closer to the guy, and we should be thanking God for that fact. We're going to be continuing on in chapter 16 next week, seeing why it's a darn good thing that this covenant is an unconditional covenant, like Corey pointed out, because we're going to see that Abraham, for all the good that he did when he believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness, blows it again, as do we all. We're going to go ahead and close there. We want to thank you guys for tuning in once again to the Scripture Chronicles podcast. Once again, if you did enjoy the show, if you want to leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, anything like that, it really does help us out. Email us. Anything. Doesn't matter. Just to say hi. We're lonely. We love to talk. ScriptureChronicles at gmail.com is the email address. Also, if you have a question, please do feel free to ask it on there. If you want to record yourself asking the question and send it in, we're going to have a Q&A episode coming up fairly soon, and we'd love it if you recorded it on any of your devices, your phone, your computer, sent it in, and then we could air it on the podcast. That would be great. Also, if you want to check us out online, www.thebibleisastory.com is the website, www.thebibleisastory.com. Com. Corey just wrote a fantastic blog on blessings in Genesis. Go check that out. Uh, we got another blog post coming at you in the pipelines here soon. Also, if you want to stay up to date and see the most recent posts, you can check us out on Facebook. The Facebook is Scripture Chronicles. That's all it is. Scripture Chronicles, like us on there, and you will get all the updates on everything Scripture Chronicles related. Once again, thank you guys for tuning in couldn't do it without you we hope you guys actually learned something don't forget this is not based on dylan and Corey and our opinion and us telling you this is how you have to do it instead we're simply trying to get you guys to see the unified story of the bible and then thereby be able to see and study the bible for yourself see that story flowing through the text and actually be able to pick up on some of these narrative cues as you study for yourself don't take Dylan and Corey's word for it. Other awesome people that you can check out on the topic. John Salehammer, Dr. Ray Lubeck, Christopher Seitz, a bunch of greats. Anyway, I'm babbling now. We're going to go ahead and end the podcast there. Thank you guys for tuning in and adios. May God bless you.